Welcome to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics, the podcast where two brothers talk about comics they loved. Uh, those brothers are now comedians, and they're also now old, but they grew up loving comic books, and that doesn't change the fact that they are uh, comedians and old. Uh, I'm one of those brothers, Kevin Hines. I'm the other brother, Will Hines. You listed a bunch of sort of independent facts there. Mm, I think they're very related. Okay. Um... We're both They Might Be Giants fans, but don't blame comic books for that or credit comic books for that. It's got nothing to do with it. We both, yeah. we're, we're also both uh, Letters to Cleo fans. Yeah. That's Kay Hanley. That, that, don't give Batman credit for mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Kay pulled that off herself. And the whole band. No way. Just Kay? She <laughs> dragged them along. <laughs> they didn't want us. The band did not want us. That's a the fact. The band actively did not want us to be fans, and Kay was like, let them be our fans. Yeah, she's like, I think everyone who likes us should be our fans. <laughs> They're like, yeah, but not those two. That's right. It was a, it was a rough concert. Thank you, Kay. Yeah, we got called out. Uh, this was in 1994 in uh, yeah. Brookline, Massachusetts. The drummer pointed at you and me and said, get them out of here. And then the rest of the band was like, yeah. <laughs> And Kay was like, why? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I don't need to re- relive it now, but it, it, was all, it all worked out. It all worked out. I mean, in, in the long run, I think they all learned to respect us at least, or, or at least uh, uh, put up with us. Once we charged the stage and sang their songs for them, they saw that we were yeah. real fans. Or not threats. Maybe yeah, they, they looked were, at us as musical threats at first like, and they heard oh, us we, singing. We have, like, yeah. We have no reason yeah. to fear these guys. They're not talented. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I um, tripped so, getting up on stage, if I recall. Yeah, I took the guitar off of uh, Mike Eisenstein, and then it exploded. Because I played it so badly, it blew up. Yeah, and I was just on the ground bleeding. My nose had hit the stage so hard. Yeah. I was still singing the lyrics that I knew, but I didn't really know them that well, so some of them were wrong. I was trying to sing Here and Now, which is one of the big songs by Letters to Cleo, but I panicked and sang End of the World as You Know It by R.E.M. Yeah, yeah. That's why R.E.M. is such a big fan of yours. Michael Stipe, luckily, was there and yeah. and was won over by my performance. Well, this is a complicated improv bit that we've lost everybody. What <laughs> we're doing mean, in this episode is... I'm barely hanging on. <laughs> is um, we are talking about Batman Year One, one of the greatest superhero comic book stories of all time, issue four, the final issue of this uh, arc. Yeah. Um, we covered issue one when we interviewed... Uh, Zichan. Uh, Zichan from... Uh, uh, TKO Presents. TKO Presents, thank you. In the middle of our previous uh, arc about Justice League International, and we couldn't stop. We were like, we covered issue one. We're like, we got to cover issues two, three, and four now. So that's what we're doing. We couldn't stop ourselves because we love this comic so much. We are the, the, the rare people who love Batman Year One. <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a real fringe pick. Yeah, you're not gonna find we, a lot of Batman fans who say this series is good, but we're amongst the minority who say no. The, Batman Year One is good. The two of us, Z, of course, uh, whoever made the animated series, uh, everyone who worked at DC at the time, basically anyone who wrote Batman comics for like the next ten years, and then after that, it starts thinning out. People don't even know about this story. We're unearthing yeah. a little gem that people don't yeah. know about. They know year two and they know year zero. Mm-hmm. Year one, they've overlooked. Yeah. And we're here to say it's good. 
And it is mm-hmm. good. It's unbelievably good. And on our, sometimes when you reread stuff that you loved when you were younger, it, it, it it's not as good as you remember. And you're like, oh, I was kind of just like young. And But Batman Year One holds up. I love it. I love it as much as I, I probably love it more. There's always a little bit of that fear also that maybe you just love it because you are in the habit of read it. But I think this, even if we read this, if we were reading for the first time now, we'd be we'd be mad that we didn't know about it sooner. And again, if anybody out there is reading year one for the first time, I want to know your honest opinion and go ahead and break our hearts and tell us that you don't love it. I mean, we will be mad at you, but I but I still Mm -hmm. want to hear it. And, and we have lots of people write in when we were covering Fantastic Four not loving it. Yes, and which I understood. People, even people who read the Master Planner saga of Spider-Man, which we spent the entire season hyping, hyping up. Yeah. And then people were like, it's okay. <laughs> this reaction we got from some people. It was a little bit of a bummer. <laughs> um, but uh, it was I was kind of like, to hear it. It was like being circus ringmasters and being like, presenting behind this curtain the greatest comic story of all time. And you pull the curtain back and people go, eh. <laughs> That's what like, it felt like. A little yeah, it's all right. um, I'm not gonna boo. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but this comic is great. I, I'd, I'd be shocked if someone did read this for the first time now and went like, "I don't like it that much," unless they like just hate Batman. But then they should know going in. I think it transcends. I think it transcends Batman. It's just a yeah. good story. Well, but again, there's a lot of Batman in this comic. Maybe too much, a lot of people That's right. say. Kevin's insanely dumb take is that there should be way less Batman in this story. I say insanely dumb because of the percentages. He was saying mm-hmm. 80% less Batman, which I'm going to say is dumb. I mean, that would be mostly issue three that would need to be changed. This issue, uh, once again, starts with Gordon and ends with Gordon. The whole thing started with Gordon. Like the last panel is Commissioner Gordon. doesn't even say Batman's name. This comic wanted to be a Commissioner Gordon comic, and Frank Miller was forced to put Batman in it by the powers of DC Comics. <laughs> Frank well, Miller did not like Batman, didn't think he was a character that worked. Frank Miller was not interested in Batman. He had no, yeah. he, he didn't want to talk about him or think about him. He, there was no stories he wanted to tell. Isn't that, it is, it is kind of weird. Frank Miller wrote basically three Batman stories, right? He did The Dark Knight Returns, Batman Year One, and then The Dark Knight Strikes Again. He's, he's done maybe more follow-up Dark Knight stories as well. I lose track of how much of that he's written or just plotted out. Okay. But yes. Well, at the time that Batman Year One came out, it was only his second Batman story, right? Yeah, yeah. He did The Dark Knight Returns, and, then, and that's sort of nuts that at, at that time, the two Batman stories he did were the seminal, uh, well, amongst the seminal Batman stories that had ever happened. For, yeah, for a long time, his only two Batman works were probably most people's number one and number two Batman stories. That's so crazy. Not everyone's, but most people. Especially like... At, at least in the conversation for everybody. And nobody would like think it was weird if you said it. It was no, It was yeah. not, you know... And they inspired Tim Burton uh, uh, take on Batman. Yes. And they inspired Batman Begins. I mean, like, still having an effect. And it's weird because, you know, comics is the thing where these comics companies are hierarchies where you have to kind of work up to the premier characters. Usually yes. you hear stories all the time about people who eventually became the signature creator for like, say Spider-Man or whatever. And it's like, well, first I had to put my time in on Dazzler and like, you know, the mm-hmm. mother Teresa miniseries or whatever. You hear that all the time. The mother Teresa miniseries. That's a vicious comic. <laughs> Before I got to do the character I wanted to do or before I kind of fell in love with doing this character that I previously had no interest in, mm-hmm. like Peter David doing the Hulk. 
Yeah, Peter um, David has that article. The title of the article was Anything But the Hulk, which was what he was said when he was asked what he wanted to write after Spider-Man. He started on Spider-Man, weirdly enough. But that's part of Jim Shooter, like getting young people in and getting and them Jim Osley, uh, now Christopher Priest, being like, this guy's good. I'm giving him a shot. And no one else will. And I happen to edit Spider-Man, so. We got to do a Shooter era. But it's just so strange, like, I mean, it would just be like somebody, I get this does happen occasionally, but like in a medium where there's people who have to pay their dues, somebody, it would be like somebody like, I was going to say playing basketball and you only play two games, you score a hundred points each game, but that's not quite right. It's more like you're a movie director and you direct a, and you direct two Westerns and those become some of the two of the most famous Westerns ever. Mm-hmm. You know, and you didn't do like a lot of grind them out. Like John Ford did great Westerns, but he did a lot of them. I mean, in Frank Miller's defense, he did Daredevil before this, right? Right. And his run on Daredevil was uh, Daredevil was a title that was fine until Frank Miller made it like one of the hot Marvel comic books. Right. And so he, he kind of formed Daredevil, which was a yeah, an Iron Man comic and yeah. made it a Iron Man comic. And he did Batmanify it. So a lot of the things that he yes. ends up doing in Dark Knight Returns, he did first in Daredevil. Same creative team, right? Klaus Jensen was yeah. his inker at Daredevil. But even would, before Born Again, right? Yes. You could have read his Daredevil arc and been like, this guy could do Batman. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And and he worked with Dave Mazzuccelli. Born Again was Dave Mazzuccelli and Frank Miller. Right, yeah. In, the, in Daredevil, the title where Frank Miller had earned his his dues to do whatever he wanted. Uh, so it's not, it's not so crazy when you break down the yes. evolution of it, but it's still a little crazy. Um, I mean, it's still Batman, which maybe at that time, I don't know if Batman was Batman. But it you must know, like, have been right. I mean, it was before the movies came out. Yes. It was before the Tim Burton movies. I mean, Batman's always big, the TV show, but what, oh, what was the big title at DC? I don't even know. It would have been justice league. I don't know. I mean, if it could have been Batman. Denny O'Neill did like make Batman a better comic book series. Yeah. Um, but certainly this, these two stories we're talking about, Dark Knight Returns in year one, changed what Batman was forever. Yeah. And they hold up so well. I mean, I think Dark Knight Returns holds up so well. Yeah. Okay, let's, should we get into this? I think we covered m- enough of it. Okay, well, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, let's talk about this. This is uh, issue four, issue 407 of Batman. Uh, it came out in May, uh, cover date May 1987. I was 12. I was 16. I was a junior in high school. You were driving? Yeah, I was newly driving. You were driving around this comic in the passenger seat? Yeah, I would put this pass. I would put this comic in the passenger seat and strap the seatbelt on and drive around. And be like, whatever you want, baby. Yeah. Whatever you want in Danbury, Connecticut, it's all yours. Seatbelt on the comic book, not on you, because it wasn't a law at the time. That's right. I don't I, think it was, but um, it was. I don't know when that became a law. Like 1980 or 81. Hmm. Worry warts. Okay, uh, let's talk about the cover. Jim Gordon with his gun drawn at Batman, who's kind of leaping at him. Although this is the story of how they become friends. This is where they they make a partnership. This feels maybe more uh, true for issue three, this cover. Yeah, but But what a great drawing. It's it's a beautiful drawing. Batman is almost completely in the shadows, uh, except for like within the interior of his cape and his costume. 
uh, and Gordon is sort of, it seems like Gordon's about to be consumed by Batman almost. He looks like Cloak from Cloak and Dagger, just like this sea of night coming out of his cape. Yeah. I mean, this cover, imagine this cover now, take out Batman. <laughs> Kevin, I think it's but worse without Batman. That's a cover. That's a good cover. <laughs> it's confusing. If Jim mm-hmm. Gordon is just pointing his gun at the right half of the page, it's confusing. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's implied. As we yeah. open this comic, uh, Jim Gordon is in the middle of an affair. He's having an affair with his partner, Lieutenant Essen. His wife is home pregnant with his baby. And, yeah, he's, and, and he's, he's meeting at the he, diner, and they're in agony over it. They're ending it. Uh, it, it's in, it's not quite said, but it's super implied. She's talking about giving this bracelet he had given her back. Uh, and she asks him, uh, if your wife weren't pregnant, would you? And there's like a pause. I'm sorry. It wasn't fair. Damn it, Jim. Uh, so they're clearly breaking up. He's, he can't go. He can't continue to see her while married with a child on the way. They do get together, right? Um, yes. Uh, she is who was dating him, married to him, I think, at some point later on. In the Dark Knight Returns, which is takes place in the far future, when Batman comes yeah. out of retirement, and Jim Gordon is maybe retired, or no, he's like he's just retired and been replaced mm-hmm. by a new commissioner, uh, Yindel, right? But he thinks of Sarah, and the rest is easy, right? That's the line from Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. So did did Frank Miller invent this character and that relationship? Uh, I'm going to answer this as if I'm sure of this. I'm not sure at all. I don't think so. I mean, I, th- I think he did. I don't think she existed before this, is what I'm saying. I think he invented her in Dark Knight Returns and then seated her here, and then creators brought her into the comics after that. Okay. I don't think he was married in the comics. Or if he was, maybe it was... I don't know if it was said. Pretty gutsy, uh, pretty gutsy move, just changing the I have no idea. Camera. I just lied to... I mean, I said before I started that I didn't know. But for sure he was married to her because she's dead now in the comics. She was killed. Oh, really? Everyone she's, gets killed in everyone comics. Gets killed, yeah. So, yeah, he's having an affair. They're ending it on page one, but then on page two, they're making out in his office. So they can't stay away from each other. He's trying to end it. Uh, but even on that page, that the caption says, she's requested a transfer. She's leaving Gotham City. I'm in love with her. It's the only thing to do. Picture of his wife is on display there on the desk. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to point out something about uh, Richmond Lewis does the colors for, for this. And this panel where Jim Gordon and, and Sarah uh, Essen are making out, um, it's all like very brown tinted. But one of the things that stands out is his pack of Marlboros on the on the desk is like this splotch of red. Um, it's kind of it's bright. I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Like it always catches my eye a little bit. Like that his. Can you smoke- hold up your version to the zoom lens? Uh, I'm just curious if the colors are. It's not super bright in my digital version. Um, I'm reading this on the DC Universe app, even though I have the trade upstairs. It's just a little easier for me while doing this podcast. What pops to me is her her blue shirt. Yep, that's also very very bright and different than than the um, than the room. Just looks cool. I don't know. This comic is cool. Um, We're also getting some television uh, information about this drug dealer Skeevers, who was both arrested and then released on bail. Uh, and it's also mentioned that Harvey Dent didn't really fight hard to keep this guy. In jail. Right. There's this subplot of how they are trying to nail some of the big criminals in the city and they're having trouble because the police commissioner is corrupt. Mm-hmm. And so everybody just gets, you know, let go. If anybody has information, they get murdered if they're a witness or they get scared out of testifying. And so it's implied that this drug dealer could lead to closing a big case against the big guns and they are releasing him. Here's my new pitch. For this comic. Okay. 
uh, a version with just Gordon, mm-hmm. barely any Batman. Then a version with just Harvey Dent, barely any Gordon or Batman. Because we <laughs> see just hints of Harvey Dent in this, and I love him. What do you love about Harvey Dent right here? To des- describe this panel, this, what do you like? Page, he just says the secret he's, that he's working with Batman behind the scenes. We don't really see any of their conversations, he and Batman working together. This releasing Skeevers uh, on bail was a, something he cooked up with Batman. Yeah. Uh, Gordon is confronting him and yelling at him. Tell me why you let Skeevers out in the street, Dent. Uh, and Harvey Dent is just sort of smiling and going, I understand how you feel, Lieutenant. Would you like to borrow my umbrella? Because it's raining. Basically going, leave. I'm not going to give you the answers. Yeah. And he's smiling. Harvey Dent is sort of smiling because he sort of he thinks this Batman is the best thing that ever happened to Harvey Dent. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and that, I, there's something very interesting about that. So, yeah, I just like that Harvey Dent. I like characters that have a secret and don't share it. I like I like Clark Kent almost more than Superman. I like Clark Kent. Um, I, I've mentioned this maybe on this podcast before, but like, there's, it's either I think it is from the Dean Cain uh, Lois and Clark adventures, <laughs> where he's like in line for uh, the ATM or something, and he sees a car jack break behind him, and he just reaches behind himself and catches it with his hand. Hmm. And holds it for a couple seconds while this guy like moves out of the way, and then he just lets go of it. Huh. Uh, and, and like the guy's like, "Ooh, I just barely—I almost got killed." Doesn't know that anyone saved him. Yeah, love that almost more than Superman saving anyone else. Yeah, like those little moments where Superman just sort of—I mean, like my favorite moment from the first Superman movie is him catching the bullets. Oh yeah, uh, where he doesn't tell Lois. Uh, it's not—he doesn't get credit for saving her. He faints. In fact, he gets—he looks like a wimp. Yeah. Uh, but he saves her life. It's great. Well, that's, the mugger points a gun friend. at them, and he's like, do what she says. Do what he says. Give her your purse. And then she drops the purse and, like, takes a swing at the mugger. And then the mugger fires, and Clark catches the bullets. Catches the bullets and faints. Yeah. Uh, and, and then he reveals he knows the he exact He looks right at the camera purse. and smiles and opens his hands and shows the bullets. He shows it to us, the audience, but not to Lois. Not to Lois. Did you, do you know that that scene was... um. Does an homage to it in Wonder Woman? I don't. In the DC, uh, in the Wonder Woman film with Gal Gadot, um, there's a scene where she is with uh, Chris Pine and they're walking around the city and a mugger mugs them and she, in her uh, identity, Diana, saves him. And and it's like shot for, not shot for shot exactly, but a lot of the shots are framed the same. I vaguely remember that. That's like the middle sequence of that movie is. Yeah. So great. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the new one. So uh, we set up here that Skeevers has been released, this drug dealer. Harvey Dent let him go, and it's implied that something is afoot. And then we see Batman scaling a building while Skeevers is talking to his attorney, and we, we start to realize what the plan is, which is they need him to testify. Right, and we see to Skeevers testify, with a lawyer. They need Batman to scare the crap out of him. Yeah, Skeevers' lawyer is basically saying, like, uh, you know, we're going to get you out of this. Don't say anything about Flass. Uh, because Skeevers has, could implicate Flass easily. And, and then Batman kind of comes in and threatens him in a very Frank Miller Batman way. She's like an evil lawyer, right? She's a lawyer for the mob or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. Her job is to, like, get him off charges and not have him squeal. I mean, that's my third Batman year one, just her. Let's follow this- her for four issues. <laughs> She's interesting looking. She's got a cool look. Mazzuccelli's yeah. given her like an interesting kind of almost like a Max Headroom punk 
post-apocalyptic with the little round glasses and the short hair, like Blade Runner, kind of. Yeah. Uh, Batman threatens this guy, uh, and it's great. He said, you can never escape me. Bullets don't harm me. Nothing harms me. But I know pain. I know pain. Sometimes I share it with someone like you. Cut to Skeevers in a trench coat and a hat in Commissioner Gordon's office. Want to talk to Dent. Cop a plea. Want to talk about Flass. Yeah. So Batman has scared him so much that he would. Ra- he's not scared of the mob. He, he just doesn't want Batman hurting him. Yeah. And then I love this line from Commissioner Gordon. Merkel, get Dent. Forget to tell the commissioner. <laughs> Great line. And he's like practically, he's jumping out of his chair. He's so excited. Like, again, this comic is good about, even if you can't quite piece together what's happened, that like this, you know, low level uh, comedian. (laughs) (laughs) This guy is, he's doing comedy on the streets. Batman doesn't like it. He's shutting him down. Um, But, you know, there's enough body language and stuff that you can like figure out what's going on. Yeah. So this comic moves pretty fast. They're tying up a lot of stuff. This issue's fa- it feels like this could have been a five or six issue series and it wouldn't have felt uh, stretched out at all. This issue's got a ton packed in. Like in the same panel where Skeevers is saying he wants to testify, in the lower right-hand corner, there's a TV screen of Flass being harassed by reporters. You know, police detective Arnold Flass has been implicated in Skeevers' drug operation. So like in the same panel is the consequences of his action. Yeah, the next page we see Commissioner Loeb. Uh, mad at Gordon for not telling him, warning him that Flash was going to be right. uh, accused of this crime, and then dropping the bombshell that he's got a photograph of Commissioner Gordon kissing Essen. Yeah, so they can blackmail him, and they're basically like, "Let our cops be corrupt." Yeah. They've, they've also established that he's a big hero cop with lots of good publicity, so they can't just like fire him or get rid of him. Yeah, or they, they would have just him. gotten rid of him. They would have they would have taken care of him, but he's too popular. Yeah. Um, so he's being blackmailed. We don't know what he's going to do about that. The next scene is we kind of set that aside for a second and commissioner Gordon and his wife are stopping at Wayne Manor to meet Bruce Wayne because we know that Gordon is highly suspects Bruce Wayne of being Batman. Yeah. And by the way, Kevin, he's right. Is he? Yeah. That's Batman. Bruce Wayne is Batman. I just don't see it. I don't know if Frank Miller came up with that, but like, I just, I just feel like I don't like the idea of Batman being drunk all the time and like sleeping around and it doesn't i also don't like it that his parents were murdered it's too pat i would rather have batman with some loving parents at home that he goes Mm -hmm. home to visit you know a a mr batman and a mrs batman yeah wearing masks yeah yeah we never see their faces anyway but frank miller is the boss not us so uh commissioner gordon and his wife meet bruce wayne and bruce wayne is putting on an act which is something that he does right to throw people off the scent whenever people around he acts like this just like millionaire playboy who only cares about girls and money or something. Yeah. He's drunk. He's with a woman who doesn't even speak English, um, offers him champagne. It's like the morning. Yeah. Uh, and he's offering it to a pregnant woman. <laughs> he's so funny. Another yeah. bottle. This one's evaporated. Um, that's a good line. Yeah. Uh, uh, Alfred seems disgusted by it. Um, and I don't know if Alfred's just acting or if he doesn't like that Batman is Bruce is pretending to be this uh, um, playboy. I think he's in on it. And there's a little bit in this comic where Alfred doesn't approve of any of this. Oh, yeah. I guess that's true. Um, so there's a little bit of that here. Anyway, they start asking him about some dates uh, like for alibis or whatever. Um, 
and Gordon leaves with this very noir line. I could auction off the phone numbers in his date book for a fortune. They're all women. They're all famous. They're all beautiful. What do you think of that? 12-year-old boys reading this comic. Pretty cool, right? Um, and then driving away, we hear Jim's wife. He's a pig. Gordon's. He's acting like one, sure. Any man who'd wear a cape, and it's a cape, not wings. I've seen it. Anyone who'd wear a cape and hunt criminals might go pretty far to keep his secrets. Ah, secrets, damn it all. It's a fun transition. Yeah, but it also shows that Gordon still thinks Bruce is his most likely suspect. Yeah. He's not, he doesn't have proof, but he still thinks he might be I mean, right. this comic, not to, to drop this, like, heavily implies that Gordon just knows. Yeah. Um, by the end of it, it's like, he must know, and he's just not going to confront him with it. He just doesn't care. He doesn't care to blow it on him. Yeah, uh, the, the thing here is like, so he sees how much his wife is disapproving of Bruce's behavior, right? Like yeah. he's a pig, he's treating women badly. And then here is a guy who's having an affair and this pushes him to confess the affair. Had Plus, an affair. It's ended. I mean, he, she moved. Don't defend him, Kevin. Okay. Just, he's I'm, just, I'm just using the right tense. He is, he did the wrong thing, but at least it's over. Give him that. Uh, and he's being blackmailed. So he pulls the car over. Honey, there's something we have to talk about. Um, and this is where he's going to tell her so that basically, I guess for lots of reasons, but one of them is that he can't be blackmailed about it. Yeah. And we see Bruce watching from a distance. Uh, I love this too. Like we don't see that conversation. So it's just sort of like, we know that they kind of park outside Wayne Manor for 10 minutes and Bruce is a little nervous about that. Yeah. Um, uh, he'll never know that it had nothing to do with him. Uh, As fun little panel here, uh, Alfred says, or, Bruce asks Alfred, "What did you? How did you like my performance?" Alfred's like, "Positively vaudevillian, sir." I, uh, I gather the remaining bottle of club soda may be left in its proper container. So he, there was no alcohol. Yeah. I suppose you'll take up flying next, like that fellow in Metropolis. Yeah. Little hint. Yeah, it doesn't seem like Alfred's into it. He just likes being a little uh, shit. I think he just likes being. Um, a little I love this next scene too, uh, where. Dent and Commissioner Gordon are talking to Flass and Flass's lawyer. Yeah. Uh, Gordon says, you're facing 10 years in prison, Flass. And Flass's response is, that's if Skeevers is alive enough to testify. The lawyer, my client didn't mean that. <laughs> it's very, very funny. Um, I think we both watched the animated movie. Yes, I've watched it since the last episode. Is, uh, that scene is very well delivered. Yes. The lawyer just jumps up. Ah, he didn't mean that. <laughs> just like it. Like um, the worst thing Flask could say. The next panel, we're at home with the Gordons, and she's answering the phone. Yes, sir, I know about Sergeant Essen. Please don't bother me again. So he's taking a weapon away from his enemies. Yeah. They, they we can't, see him, they can't we see him interrogating Flass. So that means he he's going to be blackmailed. They have to go through with their threat, but it doesn't do anything because he's already told her. Uh, somebody and poisons and tries to kill Skeevers, and he still wants to testify. That's how much Batman scared him. Poison did yeah. not t- convince Again, him. like if you look at this October 10th panel, Harvey Dent's face there. I think you just like his confidence. You like the swagger that he has. But I like what's behind the confidence because he knows Batman. Batman yeah. is why this is happening. He's like, I, we got him. It's so great. I love that secret. Yeah, and, when, and Gordon is remarking how Skeevers, Skeevers is still going to testify against Flash, doesn't care that his attorney quit. Whatever he's scared of, it's, what's so funny, Dent? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Gordon's kid is born. 
And then we also see another TV screen. So much happened so fast. Uh, Commissioner Loeb is robbed. His, his, his Snoopy lamp is robbed. Yeah, his pop art collection that Mazzuchelli has endowed him with is robbed. And we see the Catwoman has robbed it. And she's mad because there's a bunch of art stuff and not like cold assets like jewelry or cash. Right. And, they, and they, Batman is accused of doing the robbery. Uh, so Catwoman uh, just talks about going after the Roman. The crime boss. She wants to be noticed on her own terms. She doesn't like being lumped in with Batman or just being ignored or something. Um, mm-hmm. I'm gonna. You, you, I think you're right. Like this, this issue is too rushed, and it needed another issue for it to play out. But I guess it just sort of shows how masterful and how much experience Frank Miller has that he pulls it off pretty well. Like I don't, I don't, I didn't feel rushed when I read this the first time. I mean, this is almost like a montage, this sequence. The first half of this issue is a montage setting up this final action sequence, which we haven't quite gotten to yet. Um, and we'll get to soon and probably take a break right before it to build okay. up tension. Okay. Break is the break is coming. Yeah. Get ready folks. Those of you who listen to this podcast for the break, we're almost there. <laughs> get ready. There's a cool um, shot of... Um, uh, you're holding it backwards. I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm just reading it. Oh, I thought you were trying to show me a shot. Wait, you held the spine of the book up to the camera. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, there's a fun bit here where there's a TV screen. <laughs> this really comes out of nowhere. Uh, industry experts were stunned by the demonstration of unheard of possibilities for lightweight, durable plastics. And there's a logo of Wayne Chemicals. Cut to Batman sailing through the sky on some wings. Yeah, it's just sort of implying that Wayne Industries is funding his bat inventions. Um, It also makes it look like he's going to give a secret away. If he, like, Wayne Chemicals demonstrates a bunch of lightweight plastics and then Batman's using a bunch of lightweight plastics. Yeah, I mean, you're right. What's your point? Um, That Batman's going to get caught and he'll never be successful as a crime fighter. Yeah, that's probably why this character hasn't caught on yet. This is a little fringe character that only we like. You, me, Matt Reeves, <laughs> uh, and Robert Pattinson are the only people we've even heard of this character. I haven't watched the trailer yet. Have you watched it? I did. What'd you think? Looks like a Batman movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it looks good. Yeah. And there's a tiny part of me that's like, you know, like Batman like punches a guy ten times in the face, and I'm just sort of like, ah. The violence of it uh, yeah. strikes me as weird in this current climate, and I'm sort of tired of a vi- u- uber, uber violent Batman. Yeah. I almost want, not quite, I almost want Adam West Batman back. Yeah. Chill out, Batman. It, it is why, if I did a Batman film, I think I, could, I told you, I, I think I talked to you about this maybe off podcast. Yeah. I would want it just to be a Robin movie. <laughs> like, you just so hate Batman. Batman. Your big move is taking Batman out always. Well, uh, in this in this case, it's specific because there's been like a hundred Batman movies, and it'd be a way to bring the fun back in. Having right, like you a did young Robin as the yeah. focus, um, and like Batman would still be in it and big part of it, but like it'd be like this cool, uh, you know, Batman and Robin vehicle, which we really haven't had in the movies, uh, except for the anyway. George Clooney one that didn't work. I mean, even that wasn't really Robin though. It was like a different, I don't know. Like I want like the young sidekick who loves, he just you want excited a, to be there. A story centered around Robin, the character. Yeah. yeah. Um, you also could do a, uh, sort of a grim Batman. That's not violent. If you focus on the detective stuff, like just the guy who's got a plan. Sure. And and then people say that's what the Matt Reeves movie will be. That, that he's there's more detective work, but the trailer just still has a shot of him like pummeling people. And yeah. I'm just sort of like, Oh, come on, Batman. Relax. 
Um, do you want to take a break now? Not yet. Okay, you tell me when. So Batman yeah. is descending on the Roman. He's one of the big crime bosses in the city, and he's been going after him all four issues. Uh, the Roman is a weird character. He uh, has a bunch of Roman statues in his penthouse. Mm-hmm. Like all Batman villains, his art direction is on point and thorough. Yes. He lives up to his name. He's talking to his son-in-law? Is that who he's talking to or just a cousin? I don't even know. Nephew, I think. Nephew. His sister's son. Um, and he's he wants his nephew to do something. Batman is eavesdropping. And just as they're about to reveal something, Catwoman breaks in. Yeah, she's trying to make her mark. Um, and, you know, she's pretty nasty. She's like a non-superpowered... Uh, recently retired uh, dominatrix who is just mm-hmm. uh, beating the holy crap out of several armed men. Yeah. Uh, they seem like they're going to get the upper hand on her, but then Batman kind of helps, though he's mad about it. He says, wasting my time is what he says to Catwoman before he like drops back into the shadows. Um, and then Catwoman scratches the face of the Roman so she gets credit. Yeah, which is something she was planning to do back when she was in her apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's listening to the so we cut to Wayne Manor he's at home doing his one arm push ups uh, that Bruce Wayne is doing a lot and he's listening to his uh, recording and you know he doesn't have enough info here yeah and Catwoman's mad because they're referring to Catwoman as Batman's assistant very funny uh, and, last uh, night's incident, this is what the news says, it's very funny. Last night's incident connects the Batman with the recent cat burglaries. A woman with claws, presumably Batman's assistant, is said to have, that's really yeah. funny. Yeah, very infuriating. And the Roman is planning to uh, still take care of Gordon. That's who he's after. Uh, and he, as we see the Roman tell the nephew, Gordon, Johnny, once a man becomes a father, he's never truly free. Listen closely. And this is where I think we should take our break. All right, everybody. We will be right back. Hey, it's us again, your hosts, Kevin and Will Hines, and we want to hear from you. That's right. You can email us at screwitspidey at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at screwitcomics. We also have an Instagram account where we post images from the comics that we talk about, and that's screwitcomics on Instagram. That's three different ways to connect with us. Tell us your thoughts about the issues we're talking about or the format of the show or our life choices that have led us to this point. Reach out and tell us anything, honestly, and we might talk about it on a future episode of this podcast. Thanks for listening to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics from Campfire Media. And we're back. So uh, Will and I have tested out all the different slip and slides from the different companies. And you're not going to believe the one we went with. Yeah, it's not the one you'd think. It's not the trademark slip and slide. No, we went with an off brand model called the mm-hmm. whoops we did it again <laughs> yeah yeah uh a, there's a like water drops. oriented theme yeah uh, you're supposed to trip your way onto the slide mm-hmm. uh and and kind of fall down to the end the it, art on the box it, just shows a dad like face planting hard mm-hmm. in the ground yeah but i think it's the best it's got the best plastics mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's best, got the best hose attachment Best odor, which a lot of the other ones don't have, but this yeah. is a fruit flavored, fruit great. scented slip and it's slide. It's dangerous. It's a dangerous one. And that's what I like about it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so yeah, so I think up to this point, I mean, we are like halfway through this issue, maybe more. Uh, more, we're like a, only a third left. But it feels like that was all like a quick montage to get us up to this point. Everything's in place. The criminal uh, Romans empire is about to sort of, cr- or the, the corrupt cops at least are about to kind of crumble down. Yeah, which will be a huge uh, thing that hurts the um, Roman. He's yeah. about to lose a valuable inside man. Uh, and Gordon is woken up by his crying baby. Mm, his wife says, feeding time. My turn, honey. He's feeding the baby. Then there's a phone ring. Yes, yeah. Commissioner. Merkel's on duty. He can, yes, sir, on my way. We see a close-up of the evil Commissioner. Gordon is leaving his apartment. Tell the Roman. So we know they're getting Gordon out. Of, now we know, as readers, yeah. Commissioner's getting Gordon out of there so that the criminal element knows that he's gone we see gordon in his car driving away and a motorcycle speeds in the opposite direction which gordon immediately catches on that something's afoot yeah he kind of watches it and he sees it go into his parking garage does an about turn it's cool that he's like on it right away yes like he's right on it like he's just a just a minute behind the but criminal. also this motorcyclist is not part of the crime oh that's right it's batman it's batman how does he know He's Batman. Okay. Uh, that's not told. Uh, oh, we so, know Batman's been investigating this. He must have figured out a way to get that missing piece of information. I, or maybe I totally, he, I, I have known this at time, but I forgot as we were going through it. Yeah, so this motorcycle, which keys off Gordon that something's up, is actually Batman, who's here to try to protect Gordon's family. Right. So, But, but it also alerts Gordon that something's up. He turns around, drives back in, sees, doesn't see the guy getting off the motorcycle, because like, uh, Batman's in the sh- shadows getting off. Um but then Gordon hears his baby crying. Looks, and there's a car with a man in the back seat holding his baby and a knife. And also they've got his wife. And they yeah. are dragging his wife and the baby into the car. And this is terrifying. Yeah. And because it's a Frank Miller comic book, we know that like crazy stuff can, can go down. People can die. Yeah. People, it might be brutal. Uh, the stakes also, are high. If you're reading this coming and you're a super Batman nerd, Gordon doesn't have a son. Yeah. Is is does he have a dead son in the past? Is that what Frank Miller is now creating? Um, you don't know how it's gonna end if you are yeah. a reader of Frank Miller comics. And so Gordon's got his gun drawn, there's two goons pulling his wife in a car, another goon with his baby in the back, and he thinks if I let them go, they're dead. Um can't go for a what does it say here my wound can't go for a wound he's going to kill them he starts firing yeah risking his wife's life but he's like this is my only shot and barbara ducks down good barbara stay low he gets shot in the shoulder um they manage to get in the does he take one out yeah he, he takes, takes one out both the, he takes them both out the ones that are not in the car are both out down so there's a but guy the one, in the, there's at least two guys in the car one holding the baby and one driving i guess so they drive off and they're like, what's supposed one. to happen? Get out of here. He's cr-. No, there's two of them. Get out of here. He's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then he hears uh, the motorcycle behind him and sees like the motorcycle guy that at this point we think is part of the crime. And he shoots that guy point blank. Right in the, right in the ribs, basically. Yeah. The guy falls off his bike. Gordon takes the motorcycle and hauls ass after the car. Barbara Gives picks his- up the gun and points it right at the dude. Yeah. Um, and she's holding the gun on this guy. Don't I'll kill you. 
The guy takes off his helmet. Mrs. Gordon, you have to trust me. I won't let your boy die. It's and so now cool. we know it's Batman. He's not yeah. in costume for this final scene. No, he's just he looks like Bruce Wayne. He's just a which guy. I love. Um, the less Batman, Batman, the better. Any which way Kevin can get it. Bruce Wayne Bruce runs Wayne. outside, hops on a bicycle. This guy was knocked off his bike, and he's bicycling after this. Yeah. Gordon's on a motorcycle, shoots the tire of the villain who collides into the side of a bridge. Like, Gordon's almost got these guys. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 cr- the crash kills the driver, or at least knocks him out uh, cold. Uh, but then the guy with the baby kind of comes out. He's got a knife in one hand, the baby in the other, and hits Gordon with the door of his car. Um, this is you know, the next sequence is a crazy thing, which is I think physically impossible. Um, but yeah. it doesn't look physically impossible in the comics. In the animated version, it really stood out to me how nuts this was. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things where it doesn't seem so nuts in comics. But like a crazy, it's all like the goon holding the baby pushes Gordon against the side of a bridge with his knife, trying to kill him while still holding the baby. Batman has has arrived on his bicycle somehow. Yeah. And is like vaulting up into the lattice works of the bridge above the situation and dives down from above as the baby is dropped. Mm-hmm. So the baby's falling to its death. Yeah. Uh, Gordon wrestling with the villain. Somehow they both fall over the side. Maybe Gordon like pulls him over the side with yeah, I mean, him. Gordon is reaching for his child, pulls them both over, screaming no. And there's this side view, all silhouette of Bruce Wayne somehow falling faster than them. Maybe this is possible, but it looks crazy. I think it is. I mean, uh, right? Because it's when you're hit, when you hit maximum, you even up, but they're not at maximum. Right, and like he probably pushed off. You know, he dove down versus like just sort of leaping up. He maybe even like somersaulted over something like a gymnast. And he's also like, you know, he's diving. He's in dive form, which makes him more aerodynamic. So he's cutting down on all that stuff. He's going to drop a little bit faster. I don't know if there's enough distance for that to happen. I don't know how much distance you would need. Even so, he catches the baby. baby. He catches the baby and saves the baby's life. How, what does he like roll into a somersault so the baby? I no idea how the baby is. Not, the baby is now in a car accident yeah. already. And has fallen off a bridge and is caught by a by a Batman. And, the but baby's somehow, got some serious whiplash, if nothing else. Yeah, uh, you're not supposed to shake a baby. This baby has gotten shaken. Somehow, Mrs. Gordon has shown up, and she's looking over the side of the bridge. But this is now the emotional climax of the book. Gordon and Bruce Wayne, not in his Batman costume, are standing in the river below the. It's also a shallow river. Yeah, it's, it doesn't, it's not even a. It's not a high bridge. Um, the guy who was threatening Gordon is dead. And Bruce Wayne hands Jim Gordon his baby. Uh, and Jim calms and soothes his child. And the child is saved, who would have been killed. Yeah. Uh, Gordon recognizes it's the guy he shot because he says, you must be wearing some armor under that jacket. Bruce Wayne goes, yes. And this is maybe one of the coolest panels in all of comic dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't you read it? You know, <laughs> I, practically, I, I think I have overhyped it, I think. Yeah, I think you did, but it's very good. It's a good panel. Uh, I mean, it's a good line of dialogue, more than a great panel. Yeah, okay, that's right. You know, I'm practically blind without my glasses. Siren's coming, you better go. Which says to me, he put it together. This is Bruce Wayne, I can see you. I'm telling you, my story is I can't see you. Yeah, that's what I'm going to tell people. Yeah. 
but I know it's you and you just saved my kid's life. And so I already was suspecting you were a good guy, yeah. but now officially we are friends and you've yeah. got my loyalty forever. Um, we get another quick montage. So we have only one more page of this comic left. Yeah. Uh, Flass rats on Loeb and has lots of proof. Yeah. Um, so Loeb is, you know, now got all these accusations with evidence weighing him down. Um, he's so, not going to go to jail. He's going to just uh, get res- – he's resigning. Uh, just because, like, this guy's too connected to really get, go to jail. But right. He's what the re- caption says, it's Gordon's caption. Judge yeah. Norton's on the case, so I don't think Dent has a chance of putting him behind bars, meaning it's a corrupt judge, which I guess mm-hmm. Gotham is full of. Yeah. Um, so now the last three panels are Gordon on the roof of maybe the precinct. Yeah. Um, they've already got Grogan primed to replace him, meaning Loeb, who's worse. So Grogan is worse than Loeb. And um, so Gordon's not the commissioner yet is what it means. Yeah. Still, things aren't bad, so bad right now. The Roman's been at war with his sister ever since he tried to get a hired knife slid between his nephew's ribs. I had a few run-ins with his sister back in Chicago a few years ago. I don't envy the Roman. They were all too busy to stand in the way of my promotion of captain. Sarah's in New York doing well, I hear. Barbara's not crazy about the marriage counselor, but we're making progress. As for me, well, there's a real panic on. Somebody's threatened to poison the Gotham Reservoir. Calls himself the Joker. I've got a friend coming who might be able to help. Should be here any minute. (laughs) What an amazing ending. Yeah. Smoking his pipe. We haven't seen him smoke a pipe. He's been on cigarettes this whole comic, but now he's smoking the trademark Gordon pipe. Yeah. Smiling on the rooftop waiting to meet with Batman, which is like what we know he does. So this was the real story. It's how does the partnership of Gordon and Batman cement? Yeah. uh, The previous issue, we saw that Batman knew he needed Gordon. He couldn't be Batman without police on his side. Yeah. And Gordon Uh, the whole time is like, I don't know, this guy... He saved that cat. He saved that woman. He paid for that suit. I mean, Gordon is such a good cop that he he has no reason to not think Batman is a crazy person. Yes. But, like, he's paying attention, and he's like, that doesn't seem like a bad guy. Yeah. And then saves his son's life. Yeah. Um, through, like, a miracle. Through a miracle of detective work and acrobatics. And it's so powerful as, like, a young Batman fan to read and have the story of Batman and Jim Gordon's friendship suddenly like have all this like emotional stuff injected into it, saving the baby's life. And I'm also certain that this comic is why I love commissioner Gordon and anything that follows it. Like anytime there's a good commissioner Gordon story, I already loved him because of this story. This must've been the, because before this, I mean, commissioner Gordon was important, but I don't know if he was that cool a character. This makes commissioner Gordon so fleshed out and real and important and smart yeah. and capable. Well, uh, one of the great things about this story is it lets the characters be really smart and catch up to stuff really fast, but has things in place to still make sure that everything happens as we know it's going to work out. It also makes um, Gordon seem, uh, there's a, you know, a fear that I guess Gordon could just be seen as like, oh, he just wonders when it's a bad case, he calls Batman. Yeah. Uh, like, have you seen, you've seen the Lego Batman movie? Uh, yes, but I don't remember the, the commissioner Gordon, uh, who retires in the beginning of the movie and to replaced by his daughter, Barbara Gordon, uh, just talks about how 
they're like, oh, you're such a great hero. And he's like, yep, flick, flick, flick. And he's just talking about flicking the bat signal light is all he talks about. <laughs> like that's that's his key to success. <laughs> uh, and he just like, he constantly just talks about like the, every scene you see Commissioner Gordy just talks about like, oh, just turn on the light. <laughs> <laughs> like, like he doesn't even try. And Batman is so successful in that movie yeah. that that does work. Uh, it's very, very funny. Uh, this Commissioner Gordon who just has embraced his role of my job is to call Batman. Uh, we we so what do we love about this story? Let's say what we love about it. Uh, whole, for, whole, real quick, what about this issue? What what's the highlight for this issue? Okay, uh, I said it. The greatest panel uh, is when Gordon says, "You know, I'm <laughs> the greatest I can't panel see of all thing. comics." Yeah. Okay, I I got a little nuts, <laughs> but it's a great line of dialogue. Like, yeah. I can't see anything without my glasses. So much is communicated in that panel that I'm just so impressed. Yeah, uh, that's such a great line. I also, I mean, the final panel is also great. But I agree with you. The uh, I can't see you is is better. Maybe also when he tells, uh, you have to trust me, I won't let your boy die, is also like a thrill. Yeah, um, because I watched this, I read this weirdly because I read the first three issues, and then I watched the animated movie. Yeah. And I'd read this comic before, and so watching the movie, that motorcycle guy was like, I was like, that's a criminal. And I was like, oh, that's yeah. Batman? I was like, I didn't remember that at all. I remembered him in costume catching the baby for some reason. Yeah. And then watching the animated movie, I'm like, well, he must put on the costume in the comic book. And then I read the comic. I was like, no, this is pretty faithful uh, movie. You also wonder why was he not in costume? I guess because he thought he had to, he was tailing somebody or sneaking in or whatever. Yeah. Maybe like he's, he's going to put his he's costume on. He's vulnerable to be doing this out of costume, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe he would have put it on there was the plan or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, he, he doesn't have a Batmobile yet. So uh, maybe that's all that was. But then he just doesn't have time. It's realistic that he didn't stop to get dressed. Yes. Uh, and it also sets up the cool moment of like, Gordon, if he thinks it's Bruce Wayne and there's a guy standing in front of him, even blurry, that looks like Bruce Wayne, you know, mystery okay. solved. Yeah. You're the, your prime suspect is standing in front of you. I don't care how bad your My vision is really bad. Yeah. But if I was already thinking Batman it's, is Bruce Wayne and then yeah. saw them, I'd be like, yeah, this is the guy. Yeah. And I would say my, what my line would have been like, you know, the one my glasses, I still know you're fucking Bruce Wayne. Here. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. You dropped the F-bomb too? You would do a yeah, little right. F-bomb there? I stopped Flash. I stopped you. <laughs> Next, Green Lantern's going down. <laughs> you're like if Flash Gordon became <laughs> Spider-Man. You're like the bully version of Commissioner <laughs> Gordon. Uh, no, uh, I would I would have died in issue one. I would have gotten beaten up uh, by Flash and died very quickly. Uh, yeah, what do we love about this? the whole four issues? I mean, I've, I'm sure I've said it many times, but it really has a sweet spot of, like, telling you enough that you know what's going to happen, but it doesn't quite tell you directly. Like, it's very satisfying to realize what's happening all the time. I, I, I credit, I mean, we talk a lot about Mazzuchelli and what a genius he is and how much he adds to the comic, all true. But Miller really knows how to write a comic at this point. And he yeah. knows how to deliver you the exposition in a way that you think you're like smart for realizing it or, or it's just satisfying to realize what's happening. He leads you by the nose without telling you. Yes, yes. You're being controlled very much by the storyteller, but it doesn't feel like it. Like lines where the Roman tells his nephew, once a man is a father, he's never truly safe. You're like, oh, they're going to do something to Gordon's kid. Yeah. I mean, but the whole comic, they've been threatening his kids. So that shouldn't be a surprise, but it's told in a way that 
isn't so overt. We, you know, uh, it's sometimes imminent. there's lines. You know, oh, now the baby's. Uh, it's going to happen now. Uh, people make fun of the line in uh, the new Star Wars movie, uh, Rise of Skywalker, where they're trying to figure out who the spy is who's working against the Empire. And there's a line where the guy goes, I'm the spy. Um, mm. uh, I forget the character's name, uh, but it doesn't matter. And it's just like one of those lines. It's like it's it's sort of a dumb mm. reveal, but it's also the way it's delivered isn't even interesting. It's like, how'd they figure it out? Oh, that guy told them. Yeah. Like the audience can't miss it; they'll know who the spy was. Where this comic, there's a chance if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss stuff. Uh, you'd have to really not; you'd have to be reading this real fast to miss stuff. I think. Uh, um, also, but it, so it's the, not laid out. Um, they earn their victories, is the, and this is another compliment to the storytelling. So, Flass yeah. is introduced to us as an unbelievably corrupt, unrepentant cop who gets his way, who loves it who beats the crap out of people. He is cemented in as a bad guy. So mm-hmm. it's not easy to take out Flass. Yeah. And you need this first, this drug dealer who's going to rat on him. Well, first like Gordon beats the crap out of him, leaves him with no clothes on. Like we see a bunch of uh, defeats against Flass before he finally turns on the last page. Yeah. It's not easy. The, not, the, yeah. the story finds a way to, commit several blows against him so that when he finally goes down, it's satisfying. This was not true at the time the comic came out, but uh, since at least Grant Morrison's JLA, Batman has become infallible. Mm. Uh, he can't, he never, he's always prepared for everything. He never loses. He's always better at everything than everyone. Um, he's just cause, because he's the one non superpowered character. Like they've amped him up so much. That's like, yeah. and, Infallible Batman gets a little boring in this comic. He's not just he's he's both uber competent but still fallible. He makes mistakes. He struggles. Yeah. He barely survives. Like a couple centimeters one way or another. There's three or four times he he's done in this comic book. Right. So there's like in the fights you'll do the you'll have the internal monologue of him being like ah this one's got karate training but only karate or whatever. And this guy is not scared. He poses up in the corner. He'll be a problem later. You know, sort of that instant scouting thing. Yeah. Um, but then um, someone will kick him in the jaw by surprise. Like, ah, oh, wasn't ready for that. Oh, no, this guy fell over the railing. I can't let him die. Yeah. So and he's a little nervous. Like the TV hasn't hit the ground. He's trying not to think about what a drop it is, that this guy's going to die if he lets go of him. He thinks he's lucky. And he is lucky, right? I mean, he gets lucky. If he gets shot by Gordon, like he, that shouldn't have happened. Yeah. In this comic itself, he gets shot by Gordon, and that slows him down, and he has to follow him on a bike. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I guess there's, there's more of a balance of his flaws and his strengths here. Um, he, maybe, seems like, he seems like a mortal, which sometimes he doesn't uh, in other things, and I like that about him. Um, Frank Miller has this ability as a writer to zoom in on certain details that are fun and let you ignore the details that would ruin the story. So like, you know, we see the lawyer talking to Skeevers and warning him that he's going to have to wear a suit and impress the jury and not smile like a creep or whatever. Um, And we don't maybe think about what he's the only drug dealer who can do this. There's not other drug dealers. Um, it doesn't matter. It's all about skeevers. Um, yeah. And we don't see, like I said, we don't see any of the conversation between Batman and Harvey Dent. Like how do they coordinate this? Like why does he need 
Commissioner Gordon, if he's got Harvey Dent to some right. extent. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's answers to that, but like. But we don't even we don't even worry about them. Like the, it, the story steers us away from it. It basically just tells you these guys are working together. That's separate. Um. And it's it's funny how some stories are sort of not resolved. Like Essen and Gordon. It, okay, it's resolved. She left, but it's not resolved. They're still in love. What happens there? And what happens to the marriage? His marriage isn't fixed instantly. I mean, uh, Gordon also is flawed. I mean, he cheats on his wife. And then also in the end, like the commissioner is leaving, but Gordon refers to the new commissioner as worse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, his name is Grogan. It's an insanely evil name. So it's it's it, there's. And I don't, I don't think year two talks about Krogan. Maybe it does, but like the idea that like the new commissioner is more corrupt is like their job is not done. Like now they've got, he's got Batman on his side. It seems like, oh, we're going to win because now we can work together. But I heard this term, I've probably mentioned it on this series called competency porn, which is like the thrill of watching people be good at their job. Mm -hmm. Um, And that some stories part of what's fun about them is the people are good and like the story has enough details that you see the people be actually good at their job and not just like movie good. Um, yeah. You know, as opposed, like, as opposed to like a guy just kind of going into a flurry of punches and then he wins Frank Miller fights. There's a logic and a method to the madness that show why Batman's more prepared, the tools, the positioning, the scouting, the costume, he's got a strategy. I mean, it's what makes Aaron Sorkin's good work so good. It's like the the White House staff and West Wing are all like the best at their jobs. They yeah, don't always feel, win, but like they're so smart and they're so on top of things. Yeah, you feel like you're being let in on smart people being good at their jobs. So when there's like little details in the story like, uh, you know, Judge Norton's on the case. So Dent doesn't have a chance of putting low behind bars. You're like, oh. Gordon knows all the judges and who's corrupt and who's not. No, okay, so, and there's some thrill about being let in on that level of detail. I mean, even the beginning when Gordon first watches Flash beat up the um, kids on the street, he watches him for future reference. Like Gordon yeah. right away is like, I'm probably gonna have to fight this guy. Yeah, and he does. He's got by the Green Beret training. He's got size and knows how to use it. Um, so like, Frank Miller's really good at like letting everybody be sort of good at their, at their job and letting you, the reader appreciate it. Um, I don't know. It's really fun. I mean, these stories are just great fun. Uh, most things pay off later and they're set up cleanly. There's actually a lot of characters in this story. If you count people like Merkel and Brandon, Holly, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Gordon, Essen, Flash, the the Roman, the Roman and his nephew and his sister, Dent, um, Batman and Alfred, uh, um, that's like a lot for four issues and they all have like personalities and, and you're, you're in on it as the reader. Like it's just, it's, it is so elegantly pieced together. When I watch like the first or, or second season of a good sitcom, uh, one of the things I love, and I'm going to use friends as an example, even though some people maybe don't like friends is that even the small characters, like the waiters, are funny and interesting uh, and aren't just waiters. Like, they have a thing that also happens. Like, they're, they're, it's like, oh, there's a yeah. joke or there's something funny here. Yeah. Uh, like, I vaguely remember, I don't remember the specific line, so like the, all the friends are at a restaurant and Chandler makes an annoying joke to the waiter. 
And the waiter kind of like snaps at him. <laughs> like, yeah. And Chandler's like, ooh, he's going to spit my food, isn't he? And it's like, oh, they gave this waiter some personality. And yeah, it services a Chandler joke, but it wasn't just a waiter. Yeah. Like the waiter had some witty comeback. And then you watch later seasons in that same scene, it'll just be a waiter because at that point they're just sort of churning it out. But like that's the difference between like something that's really well crafted is like yeah. every character has something. When we did our episode on Watchmen, which we just did the first issue of Watchmen when the TV show came out, yeah. you made a comment that like, you know, every page of Watchmen makes you feel like that these characters have existed and been developed for like 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know, that Alan Moore fully realizes these people and their world and their stories, whether that's true or not, it sure as heck feels like it when you're reading yeah. an Alan Moore comic. and. Um, it's so satisfying to see that there's all these details that pay off and are consistent and they are specific choices. And your one is like that too. Every little mention of a character could spin off almost into its own book. It feels like, like Merkel could be a book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as much as we hold up the Ditko Stanley Spider-Man run, that's not true. Right. It doesn't feel like Doc Ock existed before that issue. It doesn't feel like Flash Gordon has anything going on. He it, since all that stuff gets filled in for those characters, and they do have rich backstories that sort of fit with those stories. But mm-hmm. in those issues, when you're reading them, it's just like, oh, he's now he's a supervillain. Great. No, Let's the, get the, into it. The thrill of Spider-Man, as we said when we covered it, is a little bit different. It's more like great improvisers filling in only the details they need as they need them and doing a great job with it. Um, yeah, that's a different thrill than maybe that's maybe that's a difference between the '60s and the '80s masters. Well, the '60s I mean, masters were like making it up as they went along, and the '80s masters were like, "We bring you full planets in every issue." But I mean, I think that's what was going on in comics, right? Each thing's an evolution; it's building on the last, right? First, there's superheroes, Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman, and they're just cool, and they got these cool powers, and they're like eye-catching and interesting. And then Marvel can't top them at that, right? Marvel's not going to come out with a better Flash, but they give. Uh, characters personalities and emotions so now it's not, now and inner now, lives yeah so now they're struggling and then they got and there's the stories are not just about the supervillains; it's about the characters great how do you elevate that to the next level and it's things like this it's like all right well now it has to be like a really well-told story to go to the next level like we've got characters and powers and so now we have batman and we have like oh it's not just batman but batman's got a personality and alfred and commissioner Gordon have personalities great now we need a, like a perfectly crafted story and everything needs to be flushed out. Like that's how you get to the next level. What's the level after that? I don't know. I mean, I don't know either. Um, I mean, at this point, I mean, it's also like movies probably too and television shows, right? You know, you go from like sitcoms, the ones yeah. that elevate the sitcom to the next level, the ones that everyone remembers, like the Dick Van Dyke show yeah. is because, oh, this isn't just a funny show. There's something else going on here. And then Mary Tyler Moore show can take that to the next level. And then yeah, and taxi uh, and then cheers and good place can like go to a whole nother place with it. And it's like, mm-hmm. but they're all building on the shoulders of what came before it. Yeah. And the expectations change and stuff like that. And each generation watches yeah. the good media of what came before and yeah. wants I mean, more. Frank Miller read comic books and then yeah. said, great. Now my turn. And detective novels, obviously. I mean, he's super influenced by like, um, uh, Dashiell Hammett and um, whoever wrote uh, Mickey Spillane. Why can I not remember his name? Who wrote The Big Sleep? Know. Mike Hammett? Uh, Raymond Chandler, but Raymond that's Chandler. not Mickey Spillane. That's uh, Philip Marlowe. Philip Marlowe, right. Sorry. Um, yeah. Wait, who uh, did Dashiell Hammett? Sam Spade. Dashiell Hammett did Sam Spade, yeah. Yeah. Um, did the Maltese Falcon. 
yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously Miller is influenced by a lot of the crime fiction stuff. Yes. I mean, this is noir uh, comics, no question. Anyway, what a what an inspiration. Um, again, if anybody's reading it, we would let we please tell us what you think, good or bad. We want to hear. Um, and, how, and the way you do that is we have, and we're gonna if we have emails, we'll get to them in one second. But our email is just because I segued to it nicely is screwitspidey at gmail. Left over from our first season, we're the milk sops. We're the uh, the idiots loving these comics. So send us some, send us your thoughts. We also have an Instagram screw it comics that we'd love for you to follow. Mm-hmm. And a Twitter that uh, uh, reposts all those Instagram things called Screw It Comics as well. I also have two other Instagram feeds, Screw It Recent and Screw It Spidey. One just mm-hmm. Spidey panels and one just whatever I've read recently that both post uh, sporadically and at random times where Screw It Comics I'll post when a new episode of our podcast launches for the next three or four days. I post a ton of images. So uh, check it out, please. Yeah. And um, uh, do we have any email to go over? We do. We have a bunch. Before I read any of them, uh, we should mention that we're off next week. Yeah, we're taking one week off, and then we're going to come back and do the Sandman. Yeah, and when the first issue, comics, the, the Vertigo comics. Um, I'll try to post a full list of what we're covering on our uh, Twitter and Instagram. But the first issue we're covering is issue five, eight, eight. Um, the the death and dream issue. I knew what the content was. I just didn't know the number. Yeah. So issue eight. Um, that's the first one where we'll be we'll be talking about that issue and Sandman in general next week. I assume. Next episode, yeah. The next episode, yes. Next week we're off, then we're going to talk about Sandman. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we got some emails, Will. Um, we've already gone pretty long, so if this starts going too long, just say, let's save them. Okay, let's do it. Uh, first, I got our weekly Benjamin Ordung email. Yes, I'm excited. Great. Uh, this is the second email, I think, of six. And he breaks his emails into history, context, and point. Right. Do you remember, Will? I do history. remember that. I started reading and collecting comics in 1991 when I read my first Spider-Man comic. From that point, I was hooked, and in 1996, I attended college. None of my friends in high school were comic fans, so I was alone in my addiction. My second year of college introduced me to my future roommate and best friend, Mr. Coffin. Uh, I had around 5,000 comics at that point, mostly from 91 and up. He had approximately 5,000 comics from prior to 1991. They all ended up in our dorm room, and I read them all. Context. While I read his prior to 1991 comics, he would not touch my after 1991 comics. He wanted no information or stories from those years to ever enter his canon. I feel like I've heard in the podcast that one brother uh, still reads, that's me, uh, but out of 1991, the other one does not. That's you, I assume, Will. That's right. And I found that fascinating. I'm pretty sure that 1991 was the year that was stated. To the point, what happened in 1991 to completely alienate readers and fans? Uh, and I don't think the year is necessarily right, but there was a point where you read a lot less comics, Will. That's right. I don't know uh, what year I, that was. It might not have been an exact a, a single day that happened I, or anything. I went but. to college, basically, and just none of my friends there were comics readers, and so I just didn't keep up with it as much. I went to college in the fall of 1988, and with momentum, I was still reading some, but by, by 92, I had all but dropped. I was reading, like, Sandman comics and Love and Rockets and Dan Klaus, and that's it. And, when, yeah. and sometimes Kevin would point me towards something and I would read it, but not too much. Yeah, you've always ebbed and flowed. Like you won't read much and then you'll go to a yeah. comic book shop and buy like a $200 yeah. worth of comics. That's Yeah, a couple times a year I'll go to spend hundreds of dollars and, and buy all these trades and sort of keep keep 
a little bit more than my toe, three or four toes in the comics pool. You read more comics than a non-comic book reader, but not as much as somebody who reads comics. Yeah. 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 Uh, And I just never... Because of Kevin and my friends who have good taste, I do tend to read a lot of your big signature things. You know, like I read all of Criminal, for example, like that was like a big splash Mm -hmm. and... I read the Vision Tom King series. I'll read the House and Powers of X at some point. Like, I'll have a decent sampling of your big tentpole things. I do think, though, in the uh, and I don't understand your your friend who stopped read won't read current comics. That's an insane thing. There's always been good comics. There's always been bad comics. Uh, but I do think in the '90s or in that range, uh, there was a shift. Uh, and it happens every now and then just to like, you know, some creators move on, new creators show up and Marvel got, in my opinion, worse, but that's just because I was reading before that people who were reading Marvel for the first time loved that stuff. Um, people who like came in on the X-Men cartoon and then started reading comics, like that's their era Yeah, is like the early nineties. Um, but for me, it's like, I've been reading comics since the mid eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'd read a ton of it and I wasn't that into it. And like, this is the era when like it was artist driven in a way, uh, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. I think it's actually a great thing, but it was artist driven in a, it needs to look cool more than tell a good story. Yeah. Sometimes we would do both, but, uh, but it became about that. And then it became about comics selling comics to collectors and, and like multiple covers and foil and boss and, and, you know, killing Superman and making a splash. And this stuff all still goes on today. But like for a while, I think it consumed comics like that. Their, their main thing was how do we sell this comic more than how do we tell a good story? Not to yeah. say everyone was thinking that, but the company was really being driven by that. And yeah. I think that that feeling ebbs and flows. So at that point, Marvel was sort of just trying to like, ride this wave they were on of uh, Spider-Man 1 and X-Men 1. And I don't know when those comics came out, but uh, those were huge, huge sellers. Um, so I think there's some of that happening there. Benjamin. Yeah. But to, to your point, Will, I don't think there was a specific year Will stopped. It's just he <laughs> faded out. Yeah. Um, we, I have an email from Gregory Gallagher. Good. Uh, just listen to your second Batman Year One episode where Kevin pitched his idea for a version of the book which focused entirely on Gordon and left Batman as an enigmatic figure, figure at the fringes of the story. Uh, and then he goes on to say how smart I am and how that's better <laughs> in every way. Okay, right. Uh, strangely enough, it reminded me of my favorite Spider-Man comic of all time, Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane. I was wondering if either of you had read it and if so, what you think of it. I find that it's a refreshing take on the Spider-Man universe, which has a bit of the early Ultimate Spider-Man feel to it, but focuses on the biggest difficulty of Peter Parker's life, being a high schooler. If you aren't familiar, the story stars Mary Jane as a high schooler who gets a crush on Spider-Man after he saves her life during an encounter with Electro, and eventually Spider-Man becomes her emotional confidant. The meat of the story involves the drama of Mary Jane's social life at school with Peter, Harry, Flash, and Gwen, occasionally punctuated by a superheroic fight sequence. The whole thing feels pleasantly like a riff on a teen drama like My So-Called Life or Freaks and Geeks, which just happens to take place in a Marvel universe with superpowered heroes and villains at the fringes. If you haven't read it, I'd give it a shot. Uh, I've read it, and I love it. Really? It is so good. It's written by Sean McKeever, hmm. um, and it's great. Uh, there's very little Spider-Man in the beginning of it. Uh, it's a Mary Jane comic. 
Peter Parker is a character in the background because at first Mary Jane's not paying this guy any mind. Yeah. Um, and you see like what's happening to Spider-Man sort of in the background, like you knowing that, you know, Peter Parker is Spider-Man. So you can read into things. It's super fun at that stuff, but it really is like the main focus is like, Oh, Mary Jane doesn't like this guy that, that wants that she's dating. Like she's dating Harry, Mm -hmm. but not that into him or whatever. Uh, and then she does become friends with Spider-Man and then she becomes friends with Peter Parker at the same time. And in the comic, it never tells you they're the same person. I think the comic is actually called Mary Jane Loves Spider-Man. Okay. Um, but I'm not 100% sure of that. Anyway, it's great. They've just reprinted it. Um, they're reprinting the whole thing in three volumes. Uh, I already owned the issues and these little digests they did that collected it. And I'm rebuying it in these big volumes. I love it wow. that much. It's one of those things I've bought How many now issues three times. Is it? Um, it was like a four-issue miniseries that did well. And then I think there was another four-issue miniseries and then an ongoing so it's probably somewhere in the 30-issue range. Okay. At the very end, Sean McKeever leaves and Terry Moore takes over of uh, Stray Bullets. Strangers in Paradise? Uh, Strangers in Paradise. Yeah, sorry. I got confused. Strangers in Paradise, Terry Moore, yeah. Takes yeah. over and does like a four- to six-issue run at the end. Mm. That is good. Not as good. Not. I mean, I love Strangers in Paradise and a lot of his other work. Um, but uh, this was Sean McKeever's baby. Yeah. And it's great. It's tremendous. I love it. Wow. Big recommendation from Kevin Hines. Yeah, and Gregory Gallagher. Thank you for the email. Thank you, Gregory. Uh, got time for a few more, Will? Yes, I do. Great. This is a fun one. Marcus Coltrane mm-hmm. emails us. Love the show and have been listening since episode one, as you're supposed to. Good job. Wow. Uh, when I was a kid, my dad used to take me down to Steve's Barber Shop on Stone Avenue every other week. The magazine rack of Steve's Barbershop had one issue of Sergeant Rock and one issue of Rom Space Knight. <laughs> I never read either of these comics, even though I looked at each of those covers twice a month. I usually just looked at the ad on the back cover comparing the graphic capabilities of the Atari 2600 and the television. <laughs> so my question is, what are Sergeant Rock and Rom Space Knight about? I could look it up on Wikipedia, but I'd much rather hear it from you. <laughs> so I am making you answer these well because you, I uh, – I'm curious what your answers are to these, how much you know about those two characters. Okay, so you don't want me to look anything up, right? I don't want to know the truth. I want to know what okay, your what like... your recollection is. <laughs> All right, well, Sergeant Rock is, you know, uh, yeah, he's a military guy. Um, Sergeant Rock and his howling commandos. No? No, is keep going. I'll, I'll tell you what I know after you've answered. Okay, well, I think Sergeant Rock originally was just like an army comic in the Marvel Universe, and they kind of pulled him into the superhero world, but he was still just like an army dude doing like kind of more Mm -hmm. like covert ops government sort of missions, but still sort of in the doing it for America kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I thought he was with the Howling Commandos, which was with, uh, you know, like, which was Captain America's outfit, but sort of like after Captain America disappeared and froze, these guys went on doing stuff. Yeah. That's what I think that is. Yeah. You're not way wrong. Sergeant Rock is a DC character. Oh, really? Uh, you're thinking of Sergeant Fury. Sergeant Fury. You're thinking uh, of Nick Fury and the Howling Commandos. I'm way uh, off. That's what I was thinking of. Um, which you've described pretty well. Okay. Uh, Sergeant Rock was a precursor to Fury. Uh, he was DC's big war hero. Okay. Uh, he was a guy who, Sergeant Rock, you can't knock him down. He never, never falls. And uh, Easy Company was his company. Mm. It was filled with uh, colorful characters. And I don't think he ever uh, came to modern times. It's just like whenever they do a war comic or whenever a character travels back in time, 
they run into Sergeant Rock. <laughs> okay. I had uh, that totally wrong. Uh, and it was drawn by Joe Kubert a lot, and it was uh, – Kubert, am I pronouncing that right, Will? I don't know. And it, I know it was, that name, but I don't know how to say it. Uh, and it was amazing. His art was amazing in it. There's I would say beautiful Kubert. comics. I have a, a couple collections of Sergeant Rock comics, and they're, they're – they're, you know, there's no continuity, and there's just story, 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 story. But they're fun, man. They're fun. Yeah. I can see them getting repetitious. They're beautiful and fun, though. That's Sergeant Rock. Now tell me about Rom Space Knight. Okay, this is a 1980s Marvel character drawn and I think maybe created by Steve Ditko. Definitely drawn. And I do not know anything about him. He journeys from another land to <laughs> Earth, and I don't know why or what he wants. I don't even know what his powers are. I'm I'm out of gas. Uh, I, I know a hair more. I don't know a lot. I've never read an issue of Rom Space Knight. I'm pretty sure it was an action figure. Oh, line. that's right. Because Marvel can't do Rom Space Knight anymore because they don't own it. And if Steve Ditko created it, they'd own it. Right. Because that's, that's their thing. Although I do think Steve Ditko drew it or drew it at some point near the end. Okay. Um, all I know is involved something with dire wraiths or like the villains in it. Okay. And there was some issue where the moon got blacked out or turned red because of something Rom Space Knight did in it, and it showed up in all the comic books at the time. It was like, read Rom, Knight, Rom Space Knight issue 50 to know what's happening. I also think there's a lot of pink involved. I feel like there was a pink color scheme yeah. with Rom Space Knight, I'm, I'm remembering. Like, they used to do things like that in Marvel Comics every once in a while. Like, it snowed in all the Marvel Comics once because of a Thor story. I remember that, yeah. Uh, but I didn't read that Thor story for like 30 years. So to me, it was like, <laughs> I just snowed in a Spider-Man comic and like yeah. the little caption box going, read the cask of the uh, Eternal Winters story in Thor. Rom had a similar thing with the moon, I think. Anyway, but um, I don't know anything about it. I've never read it. Uh, well, people who read job. it loved it. Uh, and there is a Rom comic now. Uh, like somebody owns the rights to Rom and they uh, are telling stories about him. But I still haven't read those either. All right. Oh, so, I'm sorry for doing a bad job. There you go, Marcus. Head head to Wikipedia now. <laughs> uh, uh, Will Cobe writes us, Dear Milksops, you, you keep talking about this JLI-style Avengers team, and I'm happy to bring you the answer. The Great Lakes Avengers. <laughs> Do you know about these guys well? No. These are a John Byrne creation. Um, the Great Lakes Avengers. Uh, I don't know where they first showed up. I'm pretty sure they're a John Byrne creation. It's like Flatman, um, Immortal Man. Um, uh, I'm going to pull up the Wikipedia page on them. It's uh, Dinosaur, Big Bertha, and Doorman. <laughs> yeah, they, they debuted in West Coast Avengers. Uh, and they're basically just like, they're a comedic bunch of losers. Immortal Man's powers, he can't die. Like, he, oh, he always comes back to life. So you can shoot him and he'll die, but then he just gets back up a little bit later. Flatman looks like Reed Richards and can <laughs> stretch, but he's two-dimensional. Okay. Big Bertha is like a supermodel who becomes like this huge woman, but with superpowers. Okay. They're very weird. Uh, Dan Slott did a miniseries with them later on. That's how I know them. And then also Kurt Busaic did a thing where during the stretch of time where the Avengers didn't exist in the Marvel Universe and the Thunderbolts yeah. were the new team unbeknownst yeah. everyone villains but like the thunderbolts were secretly this team they showed up uh and they changed their name to what did they become uh, i might say in here 
uh, doesn't say what they call themselves. But they they have like a Thunderbolts name. Like I don't know, like they basically it's like, all right, now you're the team we're gonna be. <laughs> now we're like they also ran Thunderbolts. It okay. was very, and that's when I I think first saw them, and then yeah, Tanslot did a miniseries with them and brought Squirrel Girl in, and it's a whole thing. They're very funny. The uh, lightning rods. The lightning rods. That's it. So they, they were the answer to the Thunderbolts, the lightning rods. <laughs> uh, they're very funny. He also mentions a characters from DC called Mas y Menos. I think these are from the Teen Titans cartoon. They might be from the comics too. They're speedsters, but they have to hold hands to use their powers. Um, <laughs> just bringing up sort of like good uh, uh, Justice League-ish characters. And he's right. Um Thomas Franzum asks, Will, okay. when, do you, uh, when do you think Miller's work jumped the shark? You've said his later work is crazy and bad, but you can't think of any specific moments or elements that make his later work so much worse. Oh, but can you think of any specific moments yeah. or elements that make his later work so much worse? Yeah, uh, that's a totally fair question. Uh, and I've been casting aspersions, and I don't – I read a lot of Sin City, maybe even all of it, but I read a lot of it. And each – story of Sin City gets like worse to me. Like the opening one I actually really dug. The Marv. The Marv one I thought was cool yeah. and weird and it was sinister and violent and stuff, but I liked it. But then the next one, which was that yellow bastard, I think, I got a little more bored with. And then I don't remember the next one. The Miho one with the ninja, I liked it a little bit, but I just kind of was found it repetitive and sort of bad. And then I, you know, the Dark Knight, um, strikes again i think it is is like yeah. almost unreadably boring i would say like yeah. it's not even bad i just like there's i don't even know quite what it's about um i i don't know what it's trying i don't know what i'm supposed to be interested in it it feels like the cool ideas are gone and it's just about like violence a vehicle to get the violence out there it almost feels like to me i'm also influenced and this is not fair and i don't like it when people do this is that i I don't agree with his politics, which I am not somebody who believes in avoiding the art if you don't agree with the artist's views automatically. Um, but, uh, you know, Miller's written some essays that are that I that I disagree with enough that it it makes it hard for me to like him. Um, yeah. And I, and I let that influence my view of his the art he's doing at the same time. I could see where there's something unfair about that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't put as much time into any of it anymore. Um, like Batman year one feels like this was a comic that he labored over. Maybe yeah, it came it feels, easy. Maybe he was just a genius and it came easy to him, but it feels like a comic that was labored over. Well, like the later Sin Cities, even the first Sin City feels a little bit like he had this cool story and he worked it out and he like had twists and turns, but then yeah, later like it, it sort of felt like. It's Sin City is its real name. and yeah the weird logic of how all the criminals and prostitutes came to live in one city was like so outrageous that I thought it was sort of funny. Yeah. But I feel like the later ones just sort of feel like, Oh, I want to draw this bunch of swords flying through the air. Yeah. Um, like 300 where the, the art of 300 is so beautiful, but mm -hmm. I actually found the comic, the story kind of boring. I was never so into the story of 300 and characters in Miller comics talk about that battle for years before he actually dramatized it in 300 but 300 kind of i don't know it it, it looked incredible but i was yeah. i've never read it a second time i wonder if it was written also that he just wanted to do it to draw because like it was also drawn in these like widescreen pages 
Yeah. Um, and it was just like, oh, I have all these visual images. Like, that's what I want to get out. I, I think about that with, like, directors and stuff, too. It's like, as they get older, it's like their movies get worse. They're not worse directors. I think they're just – they're what they're the interested in changes. Change. And, yeah. like, what drove them initially isn't driving them anymore. It's like, I have to tell the story. Now it's just sort of like, oh, why do you tell this one? I had this one idea. I just wanted to get it out there or, yeah. you know, whatever. It's like, I wanted to show um, – it's like, why did Steven Spielberg do War of the Worlds? Like, what really, what made him want to tell that movie? Like, it's yeah. a good movie. It's a fine movie. But it's no Jaws. It's no Indiana Jones. E. So, like, why did he do War of the Worlds? Was it just sort of like, oh, I had this, I had, there's one scene I wanted to do. Or, I like, this idea of, like, the family being reunited at the end. I don't know what the answer is. But, like, it feels like there's less there. And, like, I think Spielberg still makes great movies. But, like, I think you can tell the ones that he sort of, like, it's like, oh, this will be fun. And once that he's like, oh, this is what I want to do. Even like uh, Catch Me If You Can, a Spielberg movie, I don't know, had something to it that a lot of his others at that time didn't. There was He was having fun in a yeah. way with that story um, yeah. that felt missing from like the terminal and other. I mean, this, we're talking about like a master of filmmaking. Like there's always good stuff in every yeah. movie he makes. But like I know what you're saying. Like they they don't have the fire that makes this that makes them make this big unified work. So um, even hard boiled the Jeff Darrow drew and the arts incredible for that the story was nothing to me. Yeah. I, I was there another one. Like what's the big robot, like big heavy or something. Yeah. Rusty and the, uh, Rusty and the boy, uh, Rusty and the boy robot or something like that. Or big robot. Yeah. It was like, like that. Yeah. It was another Jeff Darrow one, I believe. I think so. Yeah. And it was, Hey, the guy earned his stripes to do whatever interests him. I don't begrudge Those comics just felt like, oh, it's cool to see Jeff Darrow draw these intricate details. But yeah, yeah, I can't remember a thing that happens in any of those. There was like from some point soon after he started writing Daredevil until Batman Year One, the name Frank Miller meant this story is going to grab you mm-hmm. and not let go until it's done. And it stopped meaning that. That's a high bar. but I also did wasn't really into Give Me Liberty. Um, Give me liberty was like okay, but it almost felt like hey, did um oh did did uh the Watchmen artist draw Give Me Liberty? Because I always felt like Give Me Liberty was like a bit Watchmen esque, but maybe it was the same artist, and that's why I think that. What the what's 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 the what is it David Lloyd? No, he did V for Vendetta. Um, Kevin, why can't I remember the Watchmen artist? I should go to Gibbons is the Watchmen. Good heavens, Dave Gibbons! I should be put into purgatory for now. Um, Martha Washington, Frank Miller, and drawn by Dave Gibbons. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so he's good. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I remember thinking it was okay, but like I don't remember anything about that story. It didn't stay with me. Uh, I think I read the first issue and. and I'm probably you probably got them all and I probably read them all, but I bet I started skimming it and I, it was not one that I ever went back and read it again. Uh, it, it might be great. I just don't remember. You know, it. Steve Did, Ditko, who we've talked about, and this is like one of my favorite creators. Uh, you know, the last decades of his career, all of his work was just self-published. And right before he died, I joined this, this Kickstarter. I donated to this Kickstarter at the maximum level, so I got one of every copy of every issue that his collaborator Robin something had so I got this stack of Ditko comics like a foot high and I, I can't read them like most of them are kind of boring the, the art is often very cool 
and I'm sentimentally attached to seeing Ditko's style, but I've sat down and tried to read them and I'm just like, there's no story here. This one's just a lecture. Yeah. He's, he's uh, not hooking me. In that I tried to read a bunch of Mr. A stuff recently and I couldn't get through it. Um, but I also like read his blue beetles and questions and creepers and some of that stuff grabbed me and some of it didn't. It was like a little more hit or miss. Yeah. Um, even a speedball, and it uh, was fun in a way, but Machine Man was sort of boring, and it, just, it but nothing that had like the impact of Spider Man, of course. Uh, I mean, the thing that comes the closest is the question in Blue Beetle. Yeah, but that was like the, the most recent after that, and I think Creeper was pretty good too. Um, but you could just see like he just didn't care. It was like I don't want to do another superhero comic. I'd rather do a comic that convinces people about objectivism. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, Miller. Uh, I don't know, Miller. Like, if Miller came out with a comic right now, I would not be racing to get it. I'd have to hear that it was great. Yeah. Um, Whereas Alan Moore, I always do. My head always turns for an Alan Moore comic. I don't get them all, but he I'm doesn't really like, make them I... anymore. Uh, I read his Cthulhu comic, and it was, and I love H.P. Lovecraft's works, but it was a little too rapey for me. <laughs> Which he's done a bunch of Cthulhu ones. Which one did you read? The Foundation uh, or whatever. He did a twelve issue series. Yeah, um, yeah. I haven't. I have not read that one. That yeah, is basically get... like trying to connect it all in a like a extraordinary gentleman sense of like all these stories happened in the same world. Yeah, there's something fun about. It. I read the first issue of that, and it was kind of compelling. It wasn't I couldn't, bad. I couldn't read the last issue of a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, The Tempest. I couldn't get through it. Was that the very last one? The, yeah. I loved the last one. Was the I had, it was sort of struggling to get through a bunch and then the very last one. I don't know if Tempest was the last one, but maybe it was. No, maybe it wasn't. That's the um, one with James Bond is a big figure in it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the last one I remember liking is it sort of, it, it ended things. Maybe I it was the, the Tempest last is the last one and I, yeah, I, I just, I, it was so yeah, dense. Yeah, the final volume, you're right. I was just like, I tried and I was tired. I was like, you know what? I don't want to work that hard. I guess it, I'm getting old and lazy. It, it's a comic you need to be in the mood for at that point. But yeah. we're like the first volume of league. I think it's just very fun to read. Oh yeah. Even though it's first just league. as dense. But the, a lot of them are Easter eggs that you don't have to catch. Yeah. Uh, by the last one, it feels like, Oh, if you haven't read all the back matter and have it in your memory, yeah, you're not going to follow all the stuff. Um, anyway, yeah, but I, if I had I, to pick a point, I would say the, the first in city is, was the end of Miller. Yeah, but that's too. just very arbitrarily picking. Uh, after Marv, whatever that's called, uh, the big – no, that's a later one. Uh, I think you're right. I think uh, I'll find it. Uh, I like the Sin City movie too. I love the movie, the first movie. I couldn't get through the second movie. Oh, yeah, I never even – The Hard Goodbye. Is that the first one? Yeah. Yeah. I think – if I had to pick an end, it's there. Like there might be some good stuff here and there afterwards. There's probably some stuff that isn't that good before it, but, uh, that's sort of where it ends. I mean, he still did more great stuff than almost everybody. And his great stuff still holds up. Frank Miller is like, a permanent luminary in the world of superhero comics. Like a Dame comics. to kill for is pretty good. Right. If I remember. Yeah. That's the second one. And then the yeah. yellow bastard is the third one. Um, but, um, but I, I even say like Dame to kill for it is not nearly as fun as the hard goodbye. Yeah, it starts. It starts diminishing. Um, I like that he made Sin City. There's, I just want to do noir, a direct noir. If you yeah, shots into you, your veins, it's like, hey, you're doing it. It's 
it just got too concentrated and narrow. Yeah. But I, but hey, he's allowed to do whatever he wants. Like mm-hmm. whatever interests him, he should do it. I, I'm yeah. nobody. But uh, I, it, it stopped it, being able to hook me. If for, Lucas wanted to keep cares. making prequel bad Star Wars movies, he deserves he, it. He's allowed, he should be allowed to do whatever he wants. You don't have to go see them. Um, I was at a party recently and someone's like, those prequels are going to hold up better than the J.J. Abrams movies. And at first I was like, you're insane. But then I thought about it. I was like, I know what he's talking about. There's something more original in those prequels. There's, they're not by the numbers. I don't know if any of them will hold up other than the, but the original trilogy will. People will be talking about New Hope forever. Star Wars, I'll watch it right now. I mean, that um, movie's incredible. And uh, he made that movie, so you get to do what yes. you want now. Yep. You made It's three like when people ask Paul movies. McCartney... Are you mad you never wrote another Hey Jude? And um, and uh, and he's and like, answers, well, no, because yes. I wrote the first Hey Jude. He's like, yes, I'm mad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. If you're the, if you're one of the Beatles, you could write all bad songs from now on, and yeah. it still averages out to you're great. I saw Ringo Starr in concert three years ago, maybe it was two years ago, and. He stepped out on stage at the Greek theater here. It's like four blocks from my house, 15,000 people or whatever, whatever it is in the Greek theater. Maybe it's 10,000. I don't know. Crowd went nuts for Ringo. And I was like, this is crazy. He is not a good singer. He doesn't write songs. He sang Yellow Submarine and the crowd went nuts. How many bad albums would Paul McCartney have to put out to where you're like, oh, maybe he was never good. Is there any number? There's no number. Yeah. And so that's... That's how good he is, right? Because he really like, hasn't released an album that's grabbed the masses' attention since, like, Band on the Run, um, and then which like, is 1974 or five. Like or how many bad novels would Ernest Hemingway have to write? People are like, oh, overrated. He's bad. Like, yeah. At like some this, point, you you can't diminish. Like, yeah. I mean, John Lennon did a straight up terrible album. I would say sometime in New York City, not a, a, bo- a very boring album, and it did not dent his reputation even one bit. Yeah. So uh, that's your answer, Thomas. Uh, we got one more, Will. Okay. You ready for it? I am. Um, okay, yeah. Uh, this is from Nabil. It's, it starts with Hey Milk Sops. Really loving your coverage of Batman Year One so far. I'm glad you continue with the storyline. It's one of my personal favorites and the comic that got me into Batman. Rereading it just reminds me of how perfect this comic is. Earlier, you mentioned that there is no real Year One type story for Spider-Man. While I agree that there isn't really a great modernized origin for Spider-Man in the mainstream universe, I would totally recommend Spider-Man Blue by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. I think it's a great intro for anyone interested in Spider-Man showcasing the fun romantic times with the Stan Lee, John Romita era. I was wondering if you read Spider-Man Blue, and if so, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, what are your I thoughts on Loeb's sales work not. in general, like Long Halloween or Superman for All Seasons? I think some of these stories would be great to cover on the podcast. The Long Halloween and Dark Victory work especially well as continuations from year one, in my opinion. Your loyal panty-waist, Nabil. <laughs> uh, Spider-Man Blue, have you read it? I haven't. Is it good? It's good. Uh, I don't... Uh, I really like Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale's combo work they did a challengers of the unknown mini that was really great and uh, mm-hmm. long halloween i think is really great dark victory is fun and they did spider-man blue and um hulk gray maybe daredevil yellow they did three mm-hmm. i think uh, and they're all good they're all good like tim sales art is very 
unique and interesting. And Superman for All Seasons, I think, is really good as well. Um, so they're like really fun comics. Spider-Man Blue, it's a love letter to Gwen Stacy, um, who is a character I don't have an affinity for. Okay. Like a strong affinity for. So I read it. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is good. It also doesn't scratch the itch of a Batman year one because it's it takes place in modern times and it's like Spider-Man remembering Gwen Stacy. Um, so it, it isn't even... I would rather have it be four issues that just take place during the Gwen Stacy era. Um, it would it would hold up more as a timeless piece then. But like in that comic, he is dating Mary Jane and just remembering okay. his ex, uh, yeah. which he understands because like, oh, you love this person who died, so I'm not gonna. Yeah. And it's a, it's a very sweet story, and it is a great Gwen Stacy story. Um, but uh, yeah, it doesn't quite. It's, 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 I mean, it's nowhere near Batman Year One. It doesn't scratch that same itch for me. Part of that is because for me, it would have to be a high school Ditko era Spider Man. Also, Spidey's origin is good. Like, yeah. Spidey's early years is, is well filled out. You don't need a year one for Spider Man. It is a different thing because DC comics started so much earlier. And, like, the first issue of Batman and the first issue of Batman aren't origin stories. Yeah. They're just sort of there are these guys that exist. And then later on they had to come up with origins and yeah. it was all backfilled. So like there was a need to like, let's kind of clean this all up and put it all together where Spider-Man is like, we're still using that original origin. Cause there yeah. is, there is Spider-Man uh, chapter one by John Byrne. That is supposed to be bad. I've never read it. Um, the closest I've come to the feeling of Batman year one. And I have not read anywhere near what Kevin has read in the Spider-Man um, uh, world, but um, is, um, Craven's Last Hunt, because it's like this stylistic departure, mm-hmm. but it feels kind of self-contained. It is a good story all on its own. Um, it was visually compelling. Um, it's still not as great as Batman Year One. It is the closest thing to like uh, hand this to somebody. It's a Spider-Man story in one volume. Yeah, and you can read it and enjoy it on its own. But it doesn't um, feel it, it, what that's missing is like it is a dark, moody Spider-Man story. As opposed to like a fun, cool Spider-Man story, where this comic feels like this is also like the best of what Batman is, and Craven's Last Hunt is like this is a departure from what makes Spider-Man great. In yeah, a way. that's true. That's true. I mean, that's great, and we've raved about it before. Interesting question. Uh, thank you for writing to be. It's a good comic. I like it, but uh, it's it's not what I want. I want something better. I love the Long Halloween. I read and Superman for all seasons, and I really love those a lot. Yeah. I love Superman for all seasons, maybe more than Long Halloween, but Long Halloween's great. Um, that's a lot of emails, Will. We're done. Thanks for writing, everybody. And uh, screw it, Spidey at Gmail to send us more. Probably no one's listening. And um, uh, next week's off, and then we come back with Sandman, issue number eight. Yeah, Neil Gaiman's um, mediocre work. <laughs> that nobody, yeah, unimpactful. Yeah. And, and another comic where it's another one of us dredging up the unknowns <laughs> to bring to you Sandman. <laughs> Probably one of the comics that brought more people into reading comics than anything else (laughs) in like the last 30 years. But Um, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, bye, everyone. Comics. 
Have you ever encountered an unexplained hairy bipedal hominid in the woods? Have you received telepathic messages from an unidentified aerial phenomenon? If so, then you need to listen to Bigfoot Collectors Club. I'm Michael McMillan. And I'm Bryce Johnson. And together with super producer... Riley Bray. We make up the Bigfoot Collectors Club. That's right. Every week we talk to actors, comedians, writers, and paranormal experts about their personal paranormal histories and share stories of high strangeness. Like the time when we talked to Craig Ferguson about the Loch Ness Monster and when a sea witch told him he had raven magic. Or the time I asked Pitch Perfect's Anna Camp her opinion on cattle mutilations. Past guests have included Rachel Bloom, Jen Kirkman, Paul F. Tompkins, Bobcat Goldthwait, and more. So if you've ever been abducted alongside five reindeer by an alien with grills for hands, or witnessed Bigfoot crawl out of an interdimensional portal, don't laugh, happens all the time. Then check out Bigfoot Collectors Club on Campfire Media or wherever you get your podcasts. Bigfoot Collectors Club, you're You're here here to to believe believe us. Wait, is that how it goes? Campfire.